This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day, and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 586, and we welcome back Dr. Bill Bonfleth. Uh, Bill's a Penn State professor and past, past president of ASHRAE, and also the current pandemic task force chairman. We're going to talk about mechanical systems and COVID-19 and looking forward to a great show. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. Oh, and our newest sponsor is the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Learn more at AIHA.org. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at ACGIH.org the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIscience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental in Dayton, Ohio, for being first to identify necrotizing fasciitis as the medical term for flesh-eating disease. The IQ Radio Trivia question for today, Friday, May 22nd, 2020, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company, providing unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here's today's IAQ Radio Trivia question. By what mechanism does ultraviolet germicidal irradiation kill or inactivate microorganisms? Back to you, Joe. Okay. As I mentioned in the uh, intro, Bill Bonfleth is a professor of architectural engineering at the Pennsylvania State University in University Park, PA. And he's been there since 1994. Previously, he was a senior consultant for ZBA, Inc. in Cincinnati, Ohio, and a principal investigator at the U.S. Army Construction Engineering Research Lab in Champaign, Illinois. Bill's undergraduate and graduate degrees are at the University of Illinois. He's also a ASHRAE past president and the chairman of the Pandemic Task Force. Welcome back to IAQ Radio, Bill. Well, glad to be back, Joe, Cliff, and uh, everyone else. Pleasure to be with you. Always great to talk to you. Um, I enjoyed just getting ready for the show even. And um, one of the things we talked a little bit about, and I wonder if you could tell listeners, you know, you're, you're at Penn State, uh, a very rural campus in uh, kind of central Pennsylvania, eastern central PA. Um, how are things, what are your thoughts on how things are going with respect to maybe getting back in the fall? Um, how was the changeover to doing online this summer? Uh, well, actually, the changeover to online took place rather abruptly at, after spring break. I was 
in Mexico on a spring break trip and got an email that said that we would be going on remote instruction when we came back and the students should just stay away. So since March 16th, we, we've been doing uh, remote instruction that will continue through the summer and we don't know whether it'll continue into the, the fall. Um, so that went better than uh, some might have hoped. If for me, I do a lot of, uh, of webinars and that sort of thing. So it was actually pretty comfortable, but some had never done that format and I think it was harder. Um, you know, the adjustments, well, you know, first of all, we really haven't had a wave of uh, COVID-19 in this area yet. So most of the population hasn't been affected. I think there are fewer than 150 cases in Center County where Penn State is located. So uh, we can expect at some point that, uh, that that's really going to pick up and that may be when the students come back. So I think a little reason for justifiable concern there, but still we're trying to open up. As far as the university, we have to figure out how to possibly go back to face-to-face -face instruction in the fall given that we'll still certainly have to follow distancing rules. And so I think one of the big concerns for the campus right now is, first of all, how do we uh, make buildings safe in terms of uh, their air quality? And secondly, how do we fit 45 or 50,000 students into the available classrooms if they can't fill every seat? And I think that's going to be one of the, the biggest issues to deal with, and we won't know until the middle of June how uh, the university is actually going to come down on that, whether we'll try to go face-to-face -face again or have uh, totally remote instruction as some have or have some hybrid of that. So right now, a pretty uh, uh, ambiguous situation. You know, with, with your experience with mechanical systems and, you know, all your ASHRAE work and so on, has the, has the college uh, talked to you at all about how you're going to handle putting all these students back into buildings, different types of buildings, different types of mechanical systems, uh, different types of ventilation. Have you uh, been working with them on that at all? I, I have had uh, some interactions with uh, the Office of Physical Plant here. I, I had a meeting with them primarily for the purpose of talking about uh, ultraviolet uh, air disinfection uh, a week or so ago, but that turned into a pretty wide-ranging discussion of, of all of these issues of, of, well, how well ventilated are our our buildings and uh, what filters do we have and what would the cost be to comply. So there's a big effort going on right now to assess facilities and determine how much of the existing physical plant is actually suitable under the current restrictions and level of concern that, that we have. Yeah, but that's, you know, I didn't even think of that, Bill, but I would imagine most big campuses and, you know, other multi-building facilities, they probably weren't even to the point where they had a good list of what type of mechanical systems they had in each building and, and how much ventilation they had in each building. And, and that's got to be a big project. Well, yeah, we certainly have, you know, the inventory, the database of, of what all the buildings are. And as you said, it's, it's very diverse. You've got everything from buildings that aren't air conditioned and have operable windows to, to window units to, to all kinds of central system. So uh, that, that's very diverse. I think the, the big thing that is probably going to affect a lot of universities, not just Penn State, is what was the condition of, of our physical plant uh, at the point where we, we had to start uh, addressing COVID-19. You know, it's, it's no secret that a lot of maintenance is deferred in, um, in 
universities because of the, the cost of keeping up with all of it. And if things are working well enough uh, on a normal basis, then uh, maintenance that, that maybe uh, doesn't absolutely have to be done isn't done. But, but now if having the right outside air uh, flow for every building is, is important because we think that's related to infection risk, then you need to go back and see whether these systems are actually in good condition. I think that our fiscal plan does a great job, uh, but it, it's something that uh, is getting extra attention at the moment. It's a tough situation too, because I know Penn State, you have older buildings, you have newer buildings, you've got quite a mix. And like you said, some of them have windows that open, I'll bet some have windows that don't open. I'm, I'm in a steam heated uh, building that was built uh, around the end of World War I, you know, maybe one of the, and that's not nearly the oldest building on campus, there are older buildings than that, but then we've got some that were just opened within the last year. So we've got uh, really the, the, uh, more than a century of, of construction practices and, and uh, mechanical systems to deal with. Wow, well, we'll come back when we talk more about mechanical systems, maybe we can you know, take some examples from your work there at the college, um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the, um, the CB-19 and ASHRAE task force. Um, ASHRAE started a, 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 a pandemic task force, I guess was the proper name of it. Epidemic. Epidemic, okay. I, let me make sure I get that on my notes as well. Um, so what, let's start with what caused why did they start this epidemic task force? What was the impetus behind the, the the reason they started that? Well, the the first reason is that there's a good reason to believe that most people are infected in, in indoor environments, whether they're uh, buildings or or uh, mobile environments. So uh, once it became clear that the COVID nineteen was really going to become a big a big problem. Uh, organizations like ASHRAE naturally started taking a look at what they could do to help mitigate the effects of, of the pandemic um, and, and were being asked to do it. Now, we, we started hearing from people, what is ASHRAE doing about COVID-19? Uh, when I was, was on, on my trip to Mexico, I mentioned earlier, uh, we were watching the news and on the 14th or 15th when we got ready to come back, there weren't even 1,500 infections documented in the U.S. at that point. This was, you know, beginning of March, but we had already uh, within ASHRAE seen that coming and, and uh, decided we had to do something. So I was asked to put together a group to develop guidance for uh, what to do about the pandemic. And they asked me what the scope should be. And I said, well, we should, should look at what we need to do right now, but then we also should have a, a midterm objective of looking at what we do after the initial wave dies down and uh, we're, we're going to be getting back to work and back to school. Uh, but then we need a, a third focus, which is what do we do after this pandemic is over uh, in terms of identifying research needs and needs to update standards, maybe even have new standards uh, to respond to what might happen in the future better. So we were commissioned for uh, maybe 15 to 18 months through the end of the, the coming 2021 ASHRAE Society year to, to do all of that. And right now we're somewhere between the first step and the second step in terms of uh, developing guidance that can be implemented today and 
looking at the next thing, which is reoccupying buildings and then being safe in the event that there's a second wave. And, and I, I see, I now I understand better why they called it an epidemic task force. You're not just focused on this particular pandemic, but, you know, being prepared for future uh, similar situations. It, exactly. We, we don't want to miss lessons learned. And when I, when I look for analogies, of course, some people say, well, look at what happened after the SARS epidemic. But what I think of is actually after 9-11, the, uh, the bioterrorist uh, incidents in the U.S., the anthrax mailings. There's a huge amount of activity uh, intended to identify ways that we could make buildings safer in the event that someone introduced a, uh, a dangerous pathogen into them as a biological weapon. But uh, we did a lot of work and then there weren't any more terrorist incidents. And if you look at what happened to buildings as a result, there really weren't many changes in either in uh, uh, design or operation or in the development of, of emergency plans. I think we have the same opportunity again to take a step forward in, in some important ways. And, and we wanna make sure that this time we capture that experience and the sense of urgency that's been created by the pandemic and uh, uh, do some things that will really be valuable in, in the future if we can get them into our, our standards and our uh, design practices. You know, you, you made me think there for a moment about the, you know, the 9-11 and the comparison between the two. Has the organization looked at maybe trying to do both at the same time? I mean, you're you're preparing for epidemics, but that epidemic could be either intentionally or unintentionally caused. And it seems like those two things kind of work together. I, I think that there is a, uh, a convergence of what's going on right now with the uh, the more general issue of air quality in buildings. I, I would call this an acute air quality problem to connect it to our, our view of uh, IAQ generally. So yes, I, I see um, uh, resilience when unusual and, and particularly dangerous things happen uh, connecting into normal operations. And I think that's where we, one of the changes we might see to standards is uh, to have design standards that don't simply address what normal operation should look like, but that also address what, what happens when there's some kind of a, an emergency. And you can think of other ways that resilience should be brought into uh, environmental control. Think of hurricanes and uh, the effect of power failures. We had a nursing home in, in Florida where 12 people died because there wasn't power to run the air conditioning system. Um, so there, there are a lot of ways that, that uh, this particular uh, pandemic disease connects with the, the important issue of, of resilience that's uh, getting a lot of discussion from many points of view today. Well, then you've got the flooding up in Michigan, another example of the types of things that affect buildings, and we don't always think about it, and they're, they're happening, it seems, more and more often. Um, let me uh, first check with Cliff. Any follow-up, Cliff? Oh, you're doing fine. I want to go to the slides that you sent us and um, maybe kind of walk through this a little bit. I, I appreciate you sure. sending those, and that it always helps to kind of, you know, uh, outline the, the discussion a little bit. John, can you put the first one up for us? There we go. So sure. This, yeah, this is a, I've, I've been doing probably five to seven presentations a week, so I've got a lot of slides on the, the task force. This, uh, in a nutshell, says some of the things that I've already 
mentioned the objectives uh, of the task force that was formed in, in March, uh, short-term, mid-term, long-term. And over on the, the right-hand side, uh, the task force itself consists of 17 members, four of whom are, are ASHRAE staff members. And it really functions as a steering committee. Uh, some organizations have had, had all their guidance written by a handful of people, fewer than, than 10. Uh, what we wanted to do was use the, this uh, task force to uh, reach into ASHRAE's organization, our, our 57,000 members, our 100 uh, or more technical committees and 100 or more standards committees, and use that resource to produce uh, really detailed, appropriate guidance. So we have team leaders for different activities on the on the um, task force and they build their own teams and there are more than 120 people involved in total in the teams. So it's a coordinating body within ASHRAE and also with other organizations. Some of the teams have members from uh, organizations like AIA and, and BOMA um, and others are, are coming in. Those are just a couple of examples. And we've been meeting pretty much on a weekly basis. The meetings have generally been on Saturday afternoon for a couple of hours, which has made everyone really happy. Uh, and then the um, individual teams have their own meetings. So there's a huge uh, investment of time that's been put in by volunteers to produce all of this guidance. If you go to the, the next slide, you can see the uh, current structure of the, the task force in terms of teams. So several of them over on the left are uh, the uh, managerial uh, infrastructure sort of teams, communications that deals with uh, getting things onto the website and uh, other forms of communication, the grassroots team that is uh, connecting the task force with ASHRAE's membership, uh, an advocacy uh, a team that is connecting with governments at all levels, uh, federal, state, local in the U.S., and also to some extent internationally, and then one uh, for external partnerships. In the center, you've got a, a number of teams that are um, kind of general in their focus in different areas. We have, we have one that's uh, reviewing all of the relevant uh, documentation that ASHRAE has produced that could be valuable in, in addressing the, the pandemic, so uh, standards and uh, handbooks and uh, continuing education courses, all of that stuff. We have one team that is looking at the literature that's coming in. There are thousands of papers that have been written already about COVID-19. We're trying to, uh, to some extent, organize those and, and summarize them. We've got one on filtration and, and disinfection, which is very important. I would say that uh, a third to a half of the, uh, the contacts we get from outside are about filtration and disinfection technologies. And then a really important one called building readiness, which is about uh, how do you maintain buildings while they're shut down and how do you uh, get them started up again for when they're reoccupied. And then the, the last group is a number of different occupancy focused teams that are producing guidance on those specific uh, occupancies that are listed there. And that, that list may expand. There's some things that we didn't uh, address initially that may be added. I'm getting a lot of uh, uh, requests or suggestions that we add uh, assembly to to the list here yeah. to include churches and, and uh, some of the uh, other places of worship and, and uh, public venues that are going to come online as we reopen society. So 
So that's the structure of it. And I, we'll, we'll talk about the guidance, I think, at some point. I've got some slides later on on that. But uh, I think that was later in your outline. Let me ask you a quick question. Sure. This, this came out, I believe, yesterday. And I don't know what research it was based on. But CDC and, and others are now saying that the primary route for exposure is not necessarily from surfaces, but in the air, which kind of makes your your task force and what you do even more important. Well, you know, the CDC guidance, and, and uh, don't want to sound too critical, it, it, it's a little bit confusing. They, they said initially that it was short range and, and fomite and wouldn't say anything about aerosol. And, and now they're saying it's not fomite, but my, my friends who are uh, actually um, virologists, epidemiologists tell me that, that most uh, fomite transmission is uh, believed to occur because of common sense considerations, not so much because it's actually been demonstrated. Uh, and if you look at the latest CDC guidelines, they say some things about inhalation that suggest that they're describing aerosol transfer without saying aerosol. So uh, I consider the, the situation to still be kind of unclear coming from the, the health uh, authorities, although I know they're doing their, their best with the available data, uh, we, we need to continue to assume that aerosol transmission is, is possible, whether at a long distance or at least uh, longer distances than this one to two meter uh, radius around an infected person that uh, is, is talked about all the time. Hmm. Okay, I'm glad I asked that. And then let's go to the next slide, John. I'd like to kind of keep rolling because a question just came in that I think we're going to answer anyway in these slides. Okay, so. Right, so yeah, probably the, the most discussed incident uh, that uh, relates to air conditioning and to aerosol transport is the uh, Guangzhou, China restaurant case. And so uh, this was a, a restaurant where there was a, sort of a community spread, super spreading event where there was uh, someone who did not know he was infected, who dined with, uh, with family and uh, nine people at his table and two adjacent tables uh, came down with infections that could be traced to that hour or hour and a half of contact. And, and so sometime after that, uh, the article that you see here was, was published and its title is COVID-19 Outbreak Associated with Air Conditioning in Restaurant, Guangzhou, China. Um, it was typical of a lot of investigations that have been done where they did a good job of, of uh, finding out who was where and tracing contacts, but there really wasn't much in the way of uh, environmental investigation going on. So the way I interpret the, the logic in this paper, they, they said, well, we, we know that the transmission is by large droplets at close uh, distance, and people were infected outside of that, that short distance. Uh, there was an air conditioning system running that was moving air, so the air conditioning system must have blown large droplets uh, from the infected person to these others who were as far as five meters away, and that was what caused the infection. So, um, I didn't find that very persuasive. Fortunately, another group, and that's the, the next slide, did a, um, a, another much more careful investigation. Uh, and you see the title of this article, Evidence for Probable Aerosol Transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in a Poorly Ventilated Restaurant. Uh, I'll point out that the lead author on, on this uh, article 
Hugo Lee uh, from Hong Kong is, is an ASHRAE fellow and an internationally uh, known aerosol scientist and engineer. And he's also one of the people who did the forensic work on a lot of the, uh, the SARS epidemic cases, and in particular, the Amoy Gardens uh, uh, apartment complex. And uh, they did uh, a lot of, uh, of things in their study that weren't included in, in the earlier one. So let's go to the next slide here, which summarizes some of that. You can see over on the right-hand side a, a 3D image of the restaurant, and up at the, the top are the three tables where the uh, infections occurred, and you can see the fan coil unit on the wall that was was moving air. It's located high. It's, it's above the, uh, the tables by a considerable amount, and it's causing a a, a counterclockwise circulation of air in that area. The, the infected person is at the middle table in magenta. The red ones are infected. But you notice there are another 15 tables in that restaurant and almost 70 people. None of them were infected. None of the servers who came to the tables where the infected people were, uh, were affected. Some mm -hmm. of the things that, that Lee and his team found when they looked at this case were that uh, the only air conditioning was fan coil units that were recirculating air. There was no outside air supply to the space. There were four exhaust fans. Those are circles you can see on the, uh, the left wall of the, um, the restaurant. None of them were running. The only fan that was running was the, uh, the red uh, exhaust fan in the bathroom at the bottom right of the figure. So mm -hmm. that was moving as much air as it was moving. So there was hardly any air um, exchange in this place. They also evaluated the entire security video for the incident and they found that there were really no opportunities for uh, close range transmission from the infected person to those who were farther away, no clear opportunities for fomite transmission. And they did tracer gas tests both to see where a, a tracer went under the influence of the air conditioning and to measure the the ventilation rate, and they found that the ventilation rate was somewhere between 0.75 and one liter per second per person. Now, if, if you took ASHRAE standard 62.1 and, and calculated what the uh, ventilation rate should be in a restaurant with the, the default occupancy, uh, it would be uh, more than five liters per second per person. And really, we would say typical ventilation should, is more in the, the seven to 10 liter per second per person range. So it was very low. Hmm. And, and so the conclusion you would draw from this is that while the, uh, the fan coil unit in that one area was recirculating air in the space, uh, probably the, the major cause of infections was a high concentration of SARS-CoV-2 in the air due to the fact that there was no air exchange. And if, that, if there had been a reasonable amount of ventilation, then we might not be talking about this case. And, and so there's the conclusion that uh, uh, poor ventilation was probably the, the reason behind this. And, and if, we, if it works, we can, we can see the, uh, the video of the CFD that uh, was also done as part of this study. That's on the, the next slide. I don't know if that worked out for you or not, but what they, they showed was eventually that the, uh, the contaminated air went everywhere in, in the the space, and yet there were no other infections, which suggests that dilution was sufficient to reduce risk for everyone else to such a low level that um, there were no 
further infections. Maybe this doesn't animate, but uh, when you see the whole thing, you see the, uh, the plume in, in red coming from the infected person and eventually circulating out of that one area that we were looking at and, and going everywhere because you have the slow air motion that's being created by the uh, exhaust fan in the bathroom. So seems to be evidence that uh, that aerosol transmission occurred in this case. And there are others as well that have been much discussed, like the Skagit Valley Washington Choir Rehearsal and, and a number of others. Uh, enough reason for concern that we, we really ought to be doing things to protect occupants from uh, the risk of, of airborne infection. Do, are there any studies that do indicate that someone has become infected as a result of the virus passing through the ductwork of an operating HVAC system? Uh, not to my knowledge, and I have, certainly haven't read every article that's been written, but no one that I've talked with who's been following this has seen any evidence that even if the virus gets through an air conditioning system that there's been space-to-space -space transmission. And you've got uh, uh, an infected person who's a pretty localized source. You're diluting that source in the air in the space. You're putting it through a filter that will remove some of it. And then you're further diluting it in spaces where there aren't uh, infected people. And, and so the whole idea of, of uh, infectious dose and dilution would suggest that it's probably pretty hard and maybe nearly impossible in a typical air conditioning system to move enough uh, infectious aerosol from one space to another by that route to cause an infection. We, we don't really even have sampling yet that shows that it goes all the way through. Hmm. Yeah, I would think a lot of it would be, you know, attached to the side of the ductwork or, you know, any number of places. It's well, Yeah, you know, the, the viruses are on particles and, and we filter all kinds of particles out of the air. So I have no doubt that the some of that's going into the return and getting recirculated, but apparently just not enough to, to cause a high level of risk. Interesting. Hey, John, let's, uh, let's stop and thank our sponsors, and we'll be back to the second half of our interview with uh, Dr. Bill Bonflet. IAQ Radio Industry sponsors are Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers of feature-rich particle counters and air quality monitoring instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org and RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at restorationindustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at siriscience.org. That's C-I-R-I-Science.org. ACGIH, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. 
And I just want to quickly mention our newest sponsor, the American Industrial Hygiene Association. Learn more at AIHA.org. They'll have that new tagline out real soon. I think they're going to announce things at their conference coming up the first week in June. So let's uh, – well, I think maybe we go back to the slides because I'd kind of like to have you finish that up. I believe there were a few more there. John? Uh, sure. There we go. Okay. Yeah, so, so, so moving from um... – you know, the, the restaurant case. I, I think what I should say before I talk about what's on, uh, we can go to the next slide. But, uh, the, the thing I want to say, and I didn't put the slide in, is that based on evidence like what we were just looking at, ASHRAE and, and really every other uh, HVAC-focused organization that I know of has said, well, there's enough evidence that airborne transmission can occur that we really ought to take uh, precautions against it. So ASHRAE issued a statement to that effect. Uh, Riva in Europe issued a statement to that effect. And uh, IEQGA that we may talk about if there's time uh, has issued uh, a statement to, to that effect. The, the other thing that ASHRAE uh, said be, as a sort of a foundation for guidance was that turning off your air conditioning system is not necessarily a good idea. Um, if we uh, believe the analysis in that first paper about the restaurant, you might say, well, maybe you should turn it off. But the, the thing that has to be remembered is that, that air conditioning systems do a lot of different things. They not only circulate air in a space, which is necessary to control temperature and humidity and contaminants, but they also provide ventilation. They should provide ventilation and they filter the air. So they do uh, things that are highly protective, like dilute contaminants and remove them from the air. So in general, it's a good thing to have the system running. And we know that in some environments that turning the system off can be fatal to go back to that example of what happened in hot weather when there was a power failure in a, in a nursing home. So those are the, the two basic um, things that, that uh, underpin the guidance that ASHRAE has developed. Uh, beyond that, before I, I talk about this slide in, in uh, specificity, uh, what can you do? You can, you can increase ventilation, you can reduce recirculation, you can improve filtration, you can add uh, air disinfection or air cleaning technologies. Um, you can open windows. Those are, that's pretty much the, uh, the repertoire of, of things that can be done within um, a building to control airborne risk. Oh, I should say air management too, and with ventilation, also how we, we pressurize and, and how we deliver air. So those are the things that uh, that show up in the, the various guidance documents that ASHRAE has produced. All of that stuff is being published to the uh, ASHRAE COVID-19 resources page, uh, ashrae.org slash COVID-19, and that's the uh, the top page of that site that you see in, um, in this slide. Uh, there is a, a roster there. You can see everybody who's on the task force and, and uh, who they work for. There's a, an FAQ which is developing. Everything is developing because we're, we're doing this day-to-day. Uh, -day. And uh, an important piece is that uh, set of tabs down there near the bottom of the slide, uh, reopening buildings, filtration and disinfection, transportation, resources. Inside of each of those is a lot of information about each of those subjects. Reopening has guidance specifically about uh, restarting buildings that have been shut down and how to make them safe. There's a general document there and there's one on schools. Buildings has all of those different occupancy types that we looked at before. Um, 
residential, commercial, healthcare, all of that. Uh, filtration and disinfection is all about filtration and air cleaning. There's a transportation section. And resources over on the right has uh, a lot of uh, general information in it. We can go on to the, the next slide here. So here is the uh, what you see when you go into filtration and disinfection and, and open up the guidance document there. Uh, all of these are downloadable PDFs and uh, they're actually put together as PowerPoint presentations. So you can jump from those, those links on the top slide to uh, guidance on each of those items. And, and this is a consistent format across all the guidance. And you can see the range of things that we're trying to cover with respect to filtration and, and uh, disinfection. You Next, know, one of the, go ahead. Uh, if you go back to that, John, one of the, I noticed the topic was ozone and um, another one is bipolar ionization, corona discharge. I don't know if that's your area or not, but I just recently had a question on this effectiveness of bipolar ionization. Um, can you comment on that? Uh, uh, sure, I, I can comment from my, from my own point of view. Uh, there are studies that, that uh, suggest that uh, PCO and, and BPI are, uh, are very effective uh, at, at doing what uh, manufacturers claim. There are some that suggest they're less effective. Uh, ASHRAE has chosen at this point because of uh, the, the status of the literature to not take a position for or against, but you'll find in some of ASHRAE's other guidance documents like the position document on airborne infectious diseases that uh, uh, consideration of, of air cleaners other than UV is, is uh, certainly encouraged. Uh, ozone is um, questionable for air disinfection. I say probably not even questionable. I, I think if you have, have tracked ozone for years, uh, the EPA came out a long time ago with statements that from their point of view, effective levels of ozone for air disinfection weren't safe and safe levels weren't effective. Uh, ozone, on the other hand, as a surface disinfection technology in, in occupied spaces is something that um, uh, could be considered, but we're also seeing a lot of use of uh, vaporized or aerosol uh, hydrogen peroxide for uh, disinfection of surfaces. Uh, as well as other things. I understand uh, that, that the pulse xenon lamps have been used in uh, maybe it was the New York subway. I, someone told me about that recently. So we're, we're seeing a lot of uh, air and surface treatment technologies that were not very much in the, uh, the public eye or the professional, uh, even the professionals uh, uh, consciousness getting a lot of uh, scrutiny right now. And I hope that that's another thing that comes out of all of this as we and now have opened a discussion about all of these various things that are available. And some of them we, we don't know as much about how they work as we'd like to, and we may not have standards for testing and certifying them that are as good as we'd like to have. And, and I, I certainly hope that that leads to a, a strong effort to, uh, to do those sorts of things, because really uh, air cleaners, uh, from my perspective, are uh, the, the future of indoor air quality, if we don't want to forever be stuck with just more ventilation and all of the energy costs that comes along with that. Great point. Uh, what about, I know UV is your, one of your areas of uh, strong interest and you've done a lot of research in that area. And um, 
I did. I, I, I didn't catch the whole statement you made, but I did see there was an article that said that New York City subways were now using UV to, you know, I think they were using it to try and clean surfaces. I'm wondering what your thoughts right. are on that. Well, UV is a very infective, effective surface disinfectant um, in, in a, a big uh, space like, uh, you know, maybe a, a subway terminal uh, using something like a, a UV robot that might be used to disinfect a single room in a, in a hospital is, is probably not going to be very effective because of the output level. So these, these uh, pulsed lamps, these xenon lamps, produce uh, very high intensity pulses that can deliver a pretty good dose to surfaces that are far away. Uh, I'm not uh, deeply into that particular type of technology, but I, I understand that it, uh, from what some have told me, that the effect is is similar to what you would get with the uh, the average output if you had a conventional UV device that could produce uh, that level of power. So um, they're they're effective and work on the same general principle as the UVC technology that we're uh, more familiar with. Interesting. Was there one more slide on that set, Bill, or is that the last I, one? I guess that was... Uh, it now that I think about it. Yeah, that, that was the end. You know, there's obviously way more guidance than we can cover here in a talk of this length. I just encourage everyone to go there and, and look at the, uh, the parts that are of interest to them. I should mention that in the resources tab, there's a lot of stuff. There are ASHRAE handbook chapters you can download. There are ASHRAE standards you can view uh, online free of, of charge. And there are things like uh, some of the courses that ASHRAE has put on recently, including the, uh, the UVC course that I um, did about a month ago. So if you go into the, the resources tab, you see there, there the blue uh, line of uh, uh, items there, technical committees, training, handbook, uh, all of those uh, will take you to different areas. So if you went to training, you'd find the, uh, the UV course, you go to standards, you see the readers for looking at, at standards like 52.2 and, and 62.1 170 whatever your uh, your interest is um, well wow. so there's, there's a lot of stuff there it, it could probably be organized better but you know we 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 had to try to get things out first which was the highest priority and, and now that uh, maybe we're settling down a bit uh, cleaning things up and making uh, the website more accessible is going to be uh, a priority as we move forward I think that's kind of a big deal though that you're able to put out some of these standards and the handbook, um, things that would normally cost people, you know, a couple of bucks anyway, uh, at no charge. I think that ASHRAE should be complimented on that. Uh, well, yeah, on behalf of the society, thank you. I think uh, that leadership made that decision, and I think it was the, the right one uh, to, to help the public uh, in this situation. Absolutely. Bill, I'd like to go back over the um, non-healthcare buildings, um, they should have a plan for emergency response. And then in the document I was looking at, and you had mentioned these, I just, I think it's really important. And I want to reemphasize the following modifications to building HVAC system operations should be considered. Increase outdoor air ventilation. You, you mentioned that. Improved central air and other HVAC filtration um, to a MERV 13. Um, Add portable room air cleaners with HEPA or high MER filters with due consideration to the clean air delivery rate. 
add duct or air handling unit mounted upper room and or portable UVGI devices in connection to in-room fans in high density spaces such as waiting rooms, etc. Maintain temperature and humidity as applicable to infection air, uh, to the infectious aerosol of concern and bypass energy recovery ventilation systems that leak potentially contaminated exhaust air back into the outdoor air supply. And finally, design and build inherent capabilities to respond to emerging threats and plan and practice for them. I just thought that was really important information from Ashray. I wonder if you want to maybe touch on a couple of those in a little more detail. Um, yeah, of course, I'm going from memory. That's what you're quoting there is the uh, infectious aerosols position document. Uh, one thing that I'm, I'm really kind of proud of now in retrospect is that ASHRAE has had a, a position document on airborne infectious diseases since 2009. So unlike a lot of organizations that, that just got into this, we already had a document that talked about what do you do to limit infection risk in, in buildings. Uh, one of the things the task force helped to do, but didn't actually do itself, was to expedite the updating of airborne infectious diseases, which was supposed to be finished in July of this year, August, and to get that done in uh, in April and, and published. It's the same general material as airborne infectious diseases, but it's updated. So those are general guidelines. They're not uh, specifically directed towards COVID-19. Um, also, it said consider. Uh, it shouldn't be assumed that one needs to do all of those things, and there is some priority to them. Certainly, uh, increasing ventilation is about the easiest thing to do in a lot of buildings, either by uh, using your economizer controls in a, in a central system or opening windows if you have to, and, and increasing filter efficiency as well. I, uh, some systems may have trouble going to MERV 13, they, they need to be evaluated before you actually take that step. But I, I think that both of those things in particular tie into this idea that uh, not only does this in, reduce infection risk, but it improves indoor air quality permanently. If, if uh, your, your viewers have looked at some of the data on the relationship between ventilation rates and productivity or ventilation rates and performance of children in schools or ventilation rates and sick building syndrome symptoms, our minimum ventilation rates from standards like 62.1 are probably a factor of two to three short of where the, the research says the optimum or the maximum will occur. So we have a lot of room in our minimum standards to increase air quality and reap uh, big IAQ benefits. And, and with particle filtration as well, uh, some may be aware of the World Health Organization's estimate that there are uh, more than 4 million excess deaths per year because of indoor PM 2.5 exposure. And MERV 13 or 14 filters are the ones that get to the level that actually start to do something significant about that. So uh, I think those are really important. Uh, air cleaners and, and disinfection uh, technologies are good things to add. The, the advice about ERVs, I, I want to emphasize that, that that doesn't mean that if you've got an energy recovery wheel, you need to shut it off, but there are conditions under which they can be a hazard and those need to be evaluated. And there's actually guidance on that in the, the COVID-19 building readiness uh, section, or it will be there soon, that discusses what you need to do to make sure that a, an ERB is safe. So those, those are a few of them. Did I miss anything you want me to talk about? 
One I'd like to ask you about, which is to maintain temperature and humidity as applicable to the infectious aerosol of concern. What are the recommendations currently for coronavirus, COVID-19? Yeah, well, that's, that's a really interesting one. You know, uh, for those who, who crack open their ASHRAE handbook, they will know that there's been a, a figure in the humidifier chapter since the 1980s that says that, that uh, humidity should be maintained between 40 and 60% uh, based on a, a paper that was, was published back then. Actually, I think ASHRAE says 30 to 60, but the original paper said 40 to 60. That's the recommendation that's come back, and that's based on some recent studies in healthcare environments that showed that the, uh, the outcome of uh, patients in, uh, who were hospitalized was uh, better between, uh, between those limits for a number of reasons. One is that it seems that the uh, uh, viability of, of microorganisms, viruses, and, and bacteria is uh, least in that range. It, it tends to be higher at uh, low humidities and, and uh, decreases and then seems to turn up for a lot of them at higher relative humidities. It varies from pathogen to pathogen. So there's that. And um, people seem to be more susceptible to uh, infection when the air is dry. Uh, mucosa dry out and become a, an easier place for an infection to start. And the, the third uh, thing that's related to that is that uh, the, the final droplet residue size of a respiratory aerosol droplet is determined to some extent by the relative humidity. They, they dry out faster into smaller sizes if it's dry. So uh, we'd like uh, droplets to stay large and not go very far. Uh, a dry environment will turn more of the discharge from an infected person into uh, aerosol particles can move a long distance. And there's been studies by Donald Milton at Maryland and others that have, have uh, indicated that for something like influenza, maybe 50% or more of the, uh, the viral load is in uh, particles and droplet residues that are smaller than five microns. So those are the, the reasons. Uh, but there, there's some conflicting evidence as, as far as how temperature and humidity affect different microorganisms. And so while ASHRAE uh, somewhat endorses this approach, uh, some minimum humidity to, uh, to protect against infection, REVA decided not to. And if you read REVA's guidance, they say we don't recommend any changes to normal temperature and humidity set points because we don't believe the evidence supports that. So. Uh, there, there's a bit of a debate going on, which is not unlike the debate over CO2 as an air contaminant. It doesn't really affect cognitive function at, at 1,000 ppm. It, it's kind of in the, the same uh, uh, area in terms of academic disputes at this moment. You know, you mentioned REVA. I wish uh, that's an acronym for? Uh, REHVA, it, it is... Um, Paraphrasing, it's Confederation of, of European HVAC Societies. So you, you have a national association in just about every country in Europe, and they're small countries. It would be like every state in the United States having its own HVAC society. So REVA functions as a, uh, a body that they belong to as organizational members. And, and uh, when you put all the European societies together, uh, they have more individual members than, than ASHRAE, but they're represented in REVA by their, uh, the leadership of their societies. I see. All right, John, let's go to the roundup. 
make sure you get a chance to jump in here. Any questions, thoughts? I, I do have two, uh, if I may. I guess, number one, when we were talking about the different options for air treatment, disinfection, sanitization, uh, et cetera, uh, one of the common questions that Joe and I get is uh, whether or not hydroxyl machines uh, should be utilized uh, in dealing with, with COVID. And I was just wondering whether you can uh, you know, comment on hydroxyl generators. Yeah, I have to say I'm, I'm learning a lot about uh, all of these other air cleaners day by day. And I, w I was familiar with the idea of, of PCO where you irradiate a catalyst and, and right. uh, hydroxyl radical formation in the device was uh, supposed to be one of the mechanisms that uh, uh, dissociated uh, dangerous chemicals and would kill microorganisms. The, my understanding of, of BHP, and, and I, I could be somewhat mistaken, is that they're saying that you can produce uh, from the, the water vapor and oxygen in ambient air, uh, hydrogen peroxide molecules that can be distributed by the air distribution system and that will uh, disinfect air and also uh, wind up on surfaces and disinfect them, and that that occurs at levels that are not uh, hazardous to humans. And that, that's, that's one of the big questions with any technology that puts something into the air uh, is, um, is not only is it effective, but is it safe? And um, I, I don't know enough at this point myself to, uh, to say that I, I have a, a conclusion in, uh, about either of those points, but there, there are certainly studies that support efficacy for it. Um, I'm, I'm still looking for the, uh, the proof that it's safe and for methods to certify that it's safe. You know, UV has had to weather uh, a long period of, well, they produce ozone and ozone and it's hazardous um, concerns. And now uh, those devices and some of the others as well, ionizers that can produce ozone are certifying to uh, UL 2998, which, uh, certifies a very low level of ozone production. So, you know, this is the, what new and emerging technologies uh, have to, to do. Uh, UV, even though it had been around for nearly a century, uh, really has had to step up in the last uh, 20 years to get to the position it's in now. And I, I think that uh, these other technologies eventually will do that, that that's kind of a, a work in, in progress. So, I know people who just swear by the, the performance of, um, of bipolar ionization and dry hydrogen peroxide and others, and um, there's some evidence to support that they work, but it's not quite as clear and, and strong as it is for some technologies that have been around longer. Okay. I don't want to discourage uh, people from looking at it, but you're going to, to some extent, have to make your own assessment of, uh, of the proof that's available that they work and that they're safe. My final question deals with older technology, and I'll never forget when I was a kid, my father and I were watching a movie, and it was about London, and they were bombing, and, and so on and so forth, and all the people would go down underground in the bomb shelters, and, uh, you know, within the subway stations, and, and, and so on and so forth, and one of the things that they were doing uh, is misting uh, propylene glycol. 
dilute, very dilute solutions uh, in the air. And apparently they had really good results. And most of the studies uh, that were done on this go back to the 1940s. You know, the EPA is familiar with it when you go to your website. They've got a bunch of studies on it. And what I really don't understand is really if it's a proven technology and it's safe and it's effective and it's available, uh, you know, have we forgotten about it? <laughs> Or, uh, or, or, or why? Um, so. Well, that's, I have to say thank you. I, it's not every day I, I hear of, of something in this realm that I've never heard of before, but I'm going to have to go look that up and, and see why it was discontinued. Um, you know, there are other things that have been done. Uh, say with UV, I was, I was surprised when someone mentioned it in, in the context of discussions about statements made uh, by, by the government. Um, that UV had been used on blood to, to treat disease. And I went back and looked, and yes, there's been research done. And in, in the pre-antibiotic days, uh, there were treatments for infectious diseases that involved uh, using UV on, on blood that uh, seemed to actually have some impact. Uh, that's, that's one I'll have to dig up and, and see whether it has any potential I'll, application. I'll, 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 I'll send you... Um... I'll send you the papers because I've been collecting yeah, them and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, I've got, I got two questions. I'm going to just make one a statement and the other one will be a quick question. I know it's real close to the end here. One is that ASHRAE is working on an enhanced indoor air quality in commercial and institutional buildings guideline 42P. Uh, I wasn't aware of that until I talked to you here recently. And I know you always had a keen interest in uh, indoor air quality and during your session as president you had really focused on indoor air quality i wonder if you'd like to mention anything on that document uh, excuse me that's that's a document that's being developed by a subcommittee of um, of standing standards project committee 62.1 and <clears throat> the uh, the intent is to develop a guideline not a um, a mandatory document or in, in code language or mandatory language, but one that, that describes ways that the air quality in buildings can be uh, improved beyond the level that you would get if you applied a standard like 62.1 or 62.2. So that's been in progress for a while and, and uh, the committee is looking at all sorts of different things uh, that, that would in, improve air quality from filtration and air cleaning to the ventilation and uh, it, it will when it's published include a lot of useful information on uh, what the factors are in buildings that contribute to uh, air quality issues and, and uh, how they can be controlled you know Don Weeks who's on the call here is also involved in that he's just posted that it's it's going uh, to 62.1 for a, a publication review in June uh, we've gone through multiple uh, advisory public reviews and other discussions, and it seems to be getting close to, to being ready to go. We also talked briefly um, back in your interview in, in 2016, I think it was. Um, yeah, and, and you had mentioned the IEQ Global Alliance, and uh, that's an association of associations concerning all aspects of indoor environmental quality, air quality, etc. Yeah. Can you give us a little update on the progress with the Global Alliance? Yeah, and again, that was, was something that uh, I started as a presidential initiative back in 2013-14, uh, in and uh, we had a few members sign on at the end of, uh, of my year in 2014. Uh, it is making big progress lately with, uh, with Don Weeks as the uh, 
the president, we spent probably the better part of two years working on getting it incorporated. It's, it's now incorporated in Belgium and uh, Riva, who was mentioned earlier, has taken over the secretariat duties, just handling the, uh, the staff uh, functions for it from ASHRAE. And the membership has con continued to grow. We've got uh, members like ISHRAE, the Indian HVAC Society, and we just added as a member the Acoustical Society of America, which is a really important development because we really don't want to have this just be an organization of IAQ organizations. We want acoustics and lighting involved so we can do collaborative and integrative work. There is a, an IAQGA COVID-19 task force now that's putting out some information on that and promoting dialogue between the different organizations that are involved. And uh, we're getting to the point where we can start to look forward and, and to doing some, uh, some really significant projects now that we seem to have ironed out the, uh, uh, the organizational issues and have ensured that uh, we're going to be around for a while prior to uh, getting incorporated and, and setting up uh, a way of sustaining the organization financially, there was some question as to whether it would actually make it or not, but I think we're in a good position now to move forward. And uh, there's a website, uh, Don can put up the, the uh, correct URL in the, the, the chat window if he, if he has it there, but it's basically I think IQGA.net, maybe with a, a dash in there somewhere, where you can go uh, see which organizations belong and the uh, information that's posted so far. Uh, we, we hope that this will become a, a real force in the, in the future to change our siloed uh, indoor environmental quality uh, issues to uh, uh, a more integrated um, approach. There it is. This is the homepage for the Alliance, ieq-ga.net. You know, I, I think many of us, uh, all of us who are involved in the, the organization right now believe that uh, to, to really uh, get the best IEQ, we need to uh, deal with the interactions between air quality and thermal environment and, and acoustics. And then that's uh, uh, the direction that we want to go in the future. Well, thank you, Bill. I, I, we really appreciate you joining us again. And is there anything you'd like to add before we go? Uh, only that I always enjoy these conversations. And if uh, you ever, you know, want to hear me talk for an hour again, I'd be, uh, be glad to come back. And I appreciate uh, all the, the good questions and comments from the audience as well. Thanks a lot. And, and good luck to everyone getting out of this uh, pandemic in, in, uh, in, in good shape. I think we'll be, we'll be okay. Uh, we're going to keep listening to folks like you. I think we'll be all right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Bill Bonflet. Also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back. We're going to do a, a little different show next week. We're going to do something on business creativity. And uh, we've got an interesting guest. I don't, I, I wish I had the name right in front of me, but uh, he's a keynote speaker at a lot of events and looking forward to a discussion on how to maybe kind of recreate your business. So we'll be back next Friday at noon for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.